He, uh, we have some talented young people. My goodness. Amen. They so inspired me. I thought I would do a solo now, if you don't mind. And uh, I have, apparently you do. Okay. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 20. This Sunday, last Sunday, we cover, we're covering the four themes of Advent. Last Sunday was hope. This Sunday is peace, as you've heard about. Starting with verse 4 of Luke. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried, hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. Christmas, if anything is God's heart revealed. God's heart on a platter. God's heart put into a baby. A child who would later say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, take a look at me. God came to earth to be with us. God came to earth to be us. And the angels sang, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. God wants to give us Peace, his shalom, that's the word. Shalom is God's desire for our complete well-being, spiritually, relationally, physically, emotionally. Shalom is heaven breaking into earth. Shalom is God desiring to bless us in every way that really matters. Peace to us, the angels sang. Shalom to every one of us. The peace God wishes to give us, by the way, came into the world, into a world just like ours, a world of darkness, oppression, injustice, starvation, war, poverty, terrorism, death. Still the song came. Still the angels rejoiced. God was on the move. The light was breaking into the darkness. Go look, they said to the shepherds. You'll see God lying there in a manger in a barn in the middle of the night. The song was sung under the worst of circumstances. Now please hear, the song did not eliminate the world's evil. It just announced that shalom was coming into the midst of the world's evil. 
A song that would help us overcome evil too. Even the evil in our own hearts. God wants to give us peace. Peace in many levels, in many ways. He wants us to be peacemakers. He wants us to be shalom carriers. But he first wants us to take the peace he offers into our own hearts. Because you cannot give what you do not have. God never intended that we be dominated by the circumstances of life. He never intended that we be crushed by what this world throws at us. God has designed his kingdom to be full of people who do not get whipped by evil, but go out and defeat evil. Still, all too often we lose our struggles, or at least we feel like we're losing them. Our insides churn a lot, and we wonder what all this talk about peace really means. Even after becoming Christians, some of us have found that life is still a little messy, still full of unknowns. And the sorrows of the saints are no less than the sorrows of sinners. We find that the rain not only falls on the just and unjust alike, we find so does temptation, so does cancer, so do viruses, so do car wrecks. Someone has rightly said, you know, there are disturbers of peace. A lot of the disturbers of peace are external, and we see them all around us. All you got to do is watch the news. But I think sometimes the worst disturbers of peace are internal because they stick with you day and night and often never leave you. The three great disturbers of internal peace, I think, are shame and anger and fear. Shame is the burden of the past, the inability to accept forgiveness and move on. There are people who stay stuck to the past because they cannot receive grace. Anger also can keep you stuck to the past. That's called bitterness. But often anger is the burden for the present, the frustration that we can't control things, that we can't make things right. It's like, why can't we get a hold of this and fix it? And fear is the burden for the future feeling adequate for, inadequate for things that are coming. All destroy peace because they are burdens that God never intended for us to carry around inside of us all the time. There are just some burdens we do not do well with, yet everybody wants peace. In fact, the world offers its own variety of peace. However, the peace which the world offers is not real peace at all, I've seen. From what I see, the world's peace is really just different forms of escapism. It's the peace of entertainment, escape into fantasy. Or it's the peace of drugs and alcohol, the escape of a numb mind. Or it's transcendental meditation or some other new age gobbledygook, the escape of, or flight into mindless mysticism. It's the peace which comes from refusing to face reality head on. God's peace comes not from running away from our shame and our fears and our sorrows. God's peace comes rather from God sharing them with us. Peace in the biblical sense is not the absence of struggle, but the presence of love in the middle of struggle. Real peace is when we invite God into our problems, not when we try to escape from our problems. Peace comes when we realize God can get us through anything, every time. You see, God's love works like a shock absorber. 
Shock absorbers don't remove the rocks from the road. Shock absorbers don't eliminate the potholes or smooth out the ruts. God's love does not remove the difficulties and the sorrows from our lives. But his love makes the ride bearable no matter how big the potholes are. It makes the ride endurable no matter how many ruts are in the road. God's love is the cushion between evil and our souls, between heartbreak and us being crushed. You see, when you're in a car, the road may be, have all, you know, there may be all kinds of bumps and lumps in the road. The tires may be bumping like crazy. But inside the car, there is a serenity that has nothing to do with the road. Something is absorbing the shock. Between the road and the passenger, there is something absorbing the blows. That's what shock absorbers do. God's peace is the serenity of heart which comes from the consciousness that God is with me in the middle of this mess. Jesus' favorite word for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, the one called alongside. He is our shock absorber. As one writer put it, the most important thing we ever hope for from God is God himself. Hope that he will be with us in our troubles. Not necessarily for him to take our troubles away, but always to be there. Under us to hold us up. Ahead of us to lead the way. Behind us to push us along. Over us to keep an eye on us. And in us to keep alive our hopes of getting beyond our troubles. That is how our heavenly shock absorber works. The incarnation teaches us that God did not eliminate pain in this world. He entered directly into it. Jesus hardly lived a pain-free life, wouldn't you agree? Not a man who was suffered injustice and torture and a crucifixion. And yet he said, trust God. Paul was not a person who lived a pain-free life. All you have to do is read the list in 2 Corinthians of all the things that happened to him. Or Peter, who was crucified upside down in Rome. Or all the others. And yet they said, trust God. And by the way, if it helps, I don't know anybody, even scripturally, except for, well, and, and sometimes even an exception was him, except for Jesus, I don't know anybody in scripture who got their prayers answered when and how they wanted them answered. Remember Paul and his thorn in the flesh? It says he prayed Three times for that thing to go, whatever it was. And three times he was denied. And when I say Paul prayed, I'm not talking about, you know, he took five minutes three different times. He probably took days or weeks of prayer and fasting, asking for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. And God's answer to him was no. You don't get the problem removed. You get me. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The answer is not you get rid of the problem. The answer is you get grace to handle the problem. Or even Jesus, remember, who pleaded with his father to exempt him from the cross repeatedly. Did he get what he wanted? No, he did not. He got a cross. Yet he tells us 
You can absolutely trust my Father. You can absolutely trust me. Have faith and you will have peace. You cannot have peace without faith and trust. But if you do, if you have faith and trust in God, you can have, the pe- have peace in the middle of any mess, of any mess. And at this point, I know some of you are asking, well, how do I trust? I have no easy solutions for you this morning. In fact, the solution I have is difficult, and most of you won't want to hear it, but you pay me the big bucks for this, so here I go. The only way to learn how to trust is trust. The closest experience I can think to of trusting, by the way, is swimming. You can know the theories of buoyancy, the theories of water propulsion, the actual mechanics of swimming, and still not know how to swim. Have you noticed that? I remember in researching this sermon, I was watching an episode of The Big Bang Theory. And while I was watching it, (laughs) you seem to doubt my intent. Anyway, while I was watching it, it, there's Leonard and Sheldon in their apartment. And Sheldon informs Leonard he has learned how to swim. And Leonard asked him, why did you learn how to swim? You hate the water. And he said, I read where the polar ice caps are melting. I thought I ought to learn how to swim. And then Leonard says to him, but you've not even gone near water. How did you learn how to swim? And he said, I read about it online. And Leonard said, you can't learn to swim by reading about it online. And Sheldon says, oh, no, I did more than that. I laid on the living room floor and I... I did the correct motions, to which Leonard says, no one learns how to swim on the living room floor. If you're going to learn how to swim, you have to get into the water. In the final analysis, the only way to learn how to swim is to jump, to take the plunge and start flailing your hands and feet and lift your feet off the bottom. That's the only way anyone who has learned to swim has ever done it. The only way to learn how to trust is to trust, to take the plunge, to give God things in your life. Somewhere along the line, even if you don't feel like trusting, you have to do it anyway. You have to jump in and give God your life. And if you can't do it all at once, at least wade out into the water up to your neck and pull your feet off the bottom every now and then. And learn to keep your feet off the bottom longer each time, to float a little longer each time. Look, if you can't trust God for your, with all of your life, at least trust Him with one thing. And if you can't trust Him for, just, for one thing indefinitely, at least trust Him the next hour for it. Amen. Or the next five minutes for it. Or the next one minute. Start learning how to swim. If you can't, tr- like I said, if you can't trust a whole lot, just trust a little. And for some of you, the place you need to start, you want to start trusting, the first thing you do is you tell God, I don't trust you. (laughs) That's where you start. By telling him that you're having a hard time doing what he's asking. That takes trust too. And Jesus says, he makes an incredible promise. He says, if you trust him this much, the size of a mustard seed, You know what you'll find? You'll find there are some waters you cannot drown in. God's grace, you will never drown 
and perish in God's grace. God will never let you drown. Trust God. He is the one person in this universe guaranteed to never hurt you. He is the one person in this universe guaranteed to never rob you of your dignity, to never violate you or abuse you, to never stop loving you, to never stop being faithful to you. God will never stop pulling for you. Sometimes we, we don't believe it, but God is on your side. He's on our side. Discovering peace, the rest of the heart, is critical. And here's the key to it. It is to discover that God is more faithful to us than we are to Him. That God is holding on harder to us than we are to Him. At times when you're paralyzed with fear and pain and guilt, remember that. God is holding on to you harder than you know. God is holding on even when your grip is weak. Because ultimately, our faith is not in our faith. I know people who have faith in their own faith. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in God's faithfulness. I know people who trust their own ability to trust. No, 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 no. Our trust is in His trustworthiness. Start waiting out, brothers and sisters. You'll find you float. And I should add this too about trust. A key to peace is trust. But a key to learning to trust, trust in its ultimate form, is surrender. Because you see, in our life, there are a lot of things that we're going to face that we are helpless to deal with. And we are going to have to trust God precisely because we are helpless. Sometimes we're in control of things. A lot of times we are not in control of things. And what we are not in control of, we are called to surrender to God, to relinquish to God. James Moore talks about this. He said relinquishness means letting go of the need to control. And then he used the example of Catherine Marshall. Catherine Marshall had gone to Washington to serve with her husband, Peter Marshall, who was a nationally famous Presbyterian preacher. Shortly after arriving there, she contracted a disease which confined her to her bed 24 hours a day. She wanted to help her husband in his ministry. She had many talents, and she had so much she could contribute, but she just wouldn't get better. She decided that her sickness was a result of her sin, and God was punishing her so somehow, and that's why she stayed sick. So she repented of everything and confessed every sin she knew she had. She still stayed sick. She wrote to everyone she had ever hurt or offended. I don't have enough time for that, but anyway, she did. She even wrote to an elementary school where she had cheated on an exam in the second grade and said, I am sorry that I, you know, cheated on the alphabet or whatever it was. But still she stayed sick. Finally, after weeks of frustration, Catherine came to a crossroads. And she said, God, I hate this. I'm no help to you or anyone else in this bed. But if this is the way you want me to be for the rest of my life, I relinquish my life to you. Whatever your will be done. And from that moment on, she began to recover. 
and get better. Sometimes the only way out is letting go. Sometimes the only way out of prison is to let somebody else get you out of prison. To relinquish control. You have to relinquish control if you want to be free. The ultimate form of trust is relinquishment or surrender. The main sign of by of surrender or relinquishment, by the way, when you really give it all to God, when you really take your hands off of it, the main sign is peace. An irrational peace. A peace that has no business being here. That defies the circumstances surrounding us. I believe said Paul says it is a peace that surpasses understanding our ability to comprehend it. If you're still wound up, you haven't surrendered it. If, you haven't, if you're still worried sick, you still haven't surrendered it. If you're still angry and still trying to control what you can't, you haven't really given everything fully to God yet. Because when you surrender your control of something to Christ fully, you experience a kind of freedom. You can relax because you're not responsible anymore to fix the impossible. You know what? I, I know more people who are tied up in a knot because they are trying to fix what they cannot possibly fix, and yet they still feel responsible for it. And the way you know that is they're worried sick about it. If you can't fix it, let it go. And when you let it go, peace is the result. The second sign that trust has gone all the way to surrender is that you want what God wants for you in this situation, just like Catherine Marshall. You say, your will be done. His will, not your wants, become central. Boy, that's a shift. That's when you know you're right with God, is when His will more than your wants become central. And so you attune your heart to hear His whisper. You seek guidance and you want to be guided. You want to sense what He wants and where He is leading. You listen. And guess what? You begin to hear and see what others don't. Your spirit is on tiptoe alert and listening. God becomes real in the middle of it. You want to see light? Often the best place to see it is in the middle of the darkness. The third sign that trust has led to surrender is that as we watch God move, we see things begin to change. Often things others do not notice. Often in ways that surprise us. And we accept what he's doing. We don't go, wait a minute, that's not what I asked for. I had, you know. <laughs> During this time, we often discover, and here's, here's a key thing. We often discover we were blocking the needed change all along. We needed to surrender to God in part because we needed to get out of the blooming way. Our worry, our anger, our flailing around was part of the problem all along. It was us trying to control the very thing we couldn't control. And it hindered God from doing what really needed to be done. Sometimes what you have, less is more. Sometimes you just got to get out of the way. And I'll say one more thing while I'm on this point. Surrender almost never is a one-time thing. After I surrender, I find that often I have to re-surrender it a week later, or a day later, or an hour later. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Surrender is something I have to do daily, over and over and over again. Because you see, the fallen nature in the flesh keeps trying to take things back from God. 
It keeps saying, you can't trust God. It's up to you. You do something about it. That's what got us in the mess in the first place. So you pray. You pray your worries and fears and anger. You pray until you can let go of that thing that's killing you and killing your marriage and killing your health and killing your soul. Pray till you can let it go. Pray. Don't be overcome with anxiety, says Paul. But pray. And the peace of God that is irrational will guard your hearts, will actually put a shield of protection around your hearts. You'll be like a starship with the shields up. I like that. I don't care if you liked it or not. I like that. He's <laughs> hear this. The most important question to the surrendered person is not, where is my relief? It is not, why is this happening? The most important question to the surrendered person is, where is Christ in the middle of this? What does he want of me in this situation? What is God saying? What is God up to? The prayer is, Lord, open my eyes to things unseen. Open my ears to your whisper. That is when you know you are surrendered. And the result is peace, peace, peace. I love that the angels sang and the shepherds heard it. And after they heard the song, they said, well, let's go to Bethlehem and check this out. And when they saw the child, it said the shepherds came back and spread the word to everybody they knew about what they'd heard from the angels and what they'd seen that day. Guess what? After they heard the angels sing, they started singing too. And now it's our turn. Have you heard the song? Have you heard heaven's greatest hits? We just finished a book on Wednesday night that we'd been studying, Grace, by Max Lucado. And he finishes the book with this story. It's about Barbara Leininger and her sister Regina, who were daughters of German immigrants who had settled in colonial Pennsylvania. The two girls were 11 and 9 years old when they were kidnapped. On a fall day in 1755, the sisters were in the farm cabin with their brother and father when two Iroquois warriors burst open the door. Many of the Iroquois in the area were friendly, but this pair was not. Barbara and Regina huddled together as their father stepped forward. His wife and second son had gone to the meal for the day, so they were safe. But he and his two daughters were not. He offered his uninvited guests food and tobacco. He told the girls to fetch a bucket of water, that the men must be thirsty. But as the girls scurried out the door, he spoke to them in German and told them not to come back until the two men were gone. They raced toward the nearby creek, and as they were drawing water from the creek, they heard gunfire. They hid in the grass and watched as the cabin went up in flames. Their father and brother never came out, but the two warriors did. They found the girls hiding in the grass and drug them away. Other braves and captives soon appeared. and Barbara realized that she and Regina were just two of many children who had just watched their parents massacred. Days became weeks as the tribe marched the captives westward. Barbara did her best to stay close to Regina and keep up her spirits, these two little girls. 
She reminded Regina of the song their mother had taught them and sang to them every night. She sang to them in German, Alone, yet not alone am I. Though in this solitude so drear, I feel my Savior always nigh. He comes the weary hours to cheer. I am with him and he with me. I therefore cannot lonely be alone and yet not alone am I. The girls sang to each other as they fell asleep every night. The song of home. The song of faith. And as long as they were together, they believed they could survive. At a certain point, however, the tribe dispersed, separating the sisters. Barbara tried to hold on to Regina, and they told her if she didn't let go, they were going to kill her. The two girls were marched in opposite directions. Barbara's journey continued several weeks, deeper and deeper into the forest. Finally, a village appeared. It became clear that she and the other children were to forget the ways of their parents. No English was permitted, only Iroquoian. They farmed fields and tanned hides. They wore buckskins and moccasins. Barbara lost all contact with her family and fellow settlers. By the way, just to balance this a little bit, later on the favor was returned by white people to Native Americans. We put people not only on reservations but made them go to schools and the instruction of the schools for decades and decades was to eradicate the culture and the language and the heritage of Native Americans. That was American policy. Three years later, after going through what I just described, Barbara escaped. She ran through the woods for 11 days, finally reaching the safety at Fort Pitt. She pleaded with the officers to send a rescue party to look for Regina. They explained to her that such a mission would be impossible and made arrangements for her to be reunited with her mother and her brother. There was no news of Regina anywhere. Barbara thought daily of her sister. She prayed daily for her sister. But the hope had no substance until six years later. She had married by then and had begun raising her own family when she received word that 206 captives had been rescued and taken to Fort Carlisle. Carlisle. Might Regina be one of them? Barbara and her mother set off to find out. The sight of the refugees stunned them at the fort. Most had spent years isolated in villages separated from any settlers. They were emaciated and confused. They were so pale they blended in with the snow. Barbara and her mother walked up and down the line, calling Regina's name, searching for her face, speaking German, hoping she could recognize German. No one looked or spoke back. The mother and daughter turned away with tears in their eyes and told the colonel that Regina wasn't among the rescued. The colonel urged them to be sure. He asked about identifying blemishes or scars or birthmarks. Regina had none. He asked about heirlooms. Did she have a necklace or a ring or a bracelet? The mother shook her head. Regina had been wearing no jewelry. The colonel had one final idea. Was there a childhood memory or song that your family had growing up? The two faces of the women brightened. What about the song they sang each night? And immediately... They turned and began walking slowly up and down the rows. 
And as they walked, they sang, Alone, yet not alone am I. Though in this solitude so drear, I feel my Savior always nigh. He comes to the weary hours to cheer. The faces seemed comforted by the song, but no one reacted to it. And then all of a sudden, Barbara heard a loud cry. And a tall, slender girl rushed out of the crowd toward her mother, embraced her, and together they began to sing together in German, Alone, but not alone am I. Though in this solitude so drear, I feel my Savior always nigh. Regina had not recognized her mother or sister. She had forgotten how to speak English and German. She had forgotten who she was and whose she was until she heard that song. She remembered the song that had been placed in her heart every night for years and years as they sang it as part of the bedtime ritual. Did you know God, as Lucado says, places a song in the hearts of his children too? A song of hope and life. He has put a new song in my mouth, it says in Psalms 43. Some saints sing this song loud and long every day of their lives. In other cases, the song falls silent. Life's hurts and happenings mute the music within. Long seasons pass in which God's song is not sung. But eventually, eventually God keeps singing. And people hear His voice. And something within them awakens. And when it does, they begin to sing again. The shepherds heard a song they would never forget the rest of their lives. Aren't you curious about what the tune and the rhythm was? A song that would shape and focus their souls forever. Have you heard the song of God? Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over us with singing. Rejoices over you and me right now. We get him so happy. We are his joy Have you ever thought of God getting excited about you? Have you heard his song? Our job is to listen for it and join in the song. Because it is the song of God's heart revealed, just like 2,000 years ago when the angels sang it. It is sung to us now, not by angels, but by the Spirit of God. And it still sings a lot of the same words. Shalom to you. Peace to you. Unwavering love to you, goodwill to you from heaven, God's grace to you, Jesus with you, Jesus for you, Jesus in you. Have you heard that song lately? Or have you forgotten who and whose you are? Pray until you hear the song again. Pray until you learn the song again. Pray until you start singing along with a joyful sound again. And if you're already singing, you might want to grab a tambourine and start dancing too. I'm not saying anything, Pastor Sitter. (laughs) Because Christ has come. That's what Christmas is about. Christ has come and he brought shalom with him. And when he brought shalom with him, it means we can overcome anything and everything. And sometimes it means we are delivered from our problems. But most of the time it means we are empowered to have peace in the middle of our problems and overcome them that way. 
Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the way we do it, it was trust and faith and shalom with God's Spirit in us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'd like the intercessors to come forward and the worship team to come forward as we conclude our service. While they're on their way, I'd like you to make a decision. And it's very simple. Two things. Are you hearing the song <laughs> that the Spirit is singing to you? Are you feeling the love God is giving to you? Are you experiencing the peace He wants to shed abroad in your heart? Are you, hearing, are you dancing to the music? And the other question is this. The other question is, if you're not, are you willing to start praying and listening again in order to find the music of heaven in your own heart again? Angels sang. God sings. Have you been singing lately? <laughs> you only sing if you've heard the song. Would you stand?
Pastor Linda walked up to me and she said, you get to practice what you've preached on this morning. Uh, we just received word that my son, Zach, was riding his bicycle back from church to his apartment and he was hit by a car. And uh, he is alive and he is conscious. They are evaluating him for injuries. We don't know the extent of his injuries. But uh, would you uh, pray for my son? morning. Uh, I, I told Hank I think I could do this. Hank, you better come back up here and pray. Pray for Zach. Um, Father God, we thank you that you're the God of peace. We pray that even right now, and we don't just get to practice what we preach, but we pray that we get to throw it all to you and just trust you right now. Hold on to you right now. Ask for your help right now. Ask for your strength right now. Ask for your comfort right now. God, we thank you for news that his eyes are open and he's conscious, and we bless you for that, and we praise you for that. But God, we pray that you give peace to his family, peace to Pastor Woody, peace to Kim as she tries to sort through language barrier and find out what's going on. Peace to Zach right now. Lord, help him to feel your power in a powerful way. Help him to feel your comfort right now. Help him to know that you're the God who's faithful, you're the God who's carrying him. You're the God who can heal him. So even right now, Lord, help him to feel you. Lord, let our prayers not stop right now. Let us pray for him. Even the rest of this day as we think of him, let us lift him up, Lord. God, we pray for that young man who seeks to live out for your glory, who's in another country to share your love and to just serve you, God. We pray that even right now, Lord, let him know your peace. Let him know your peace. Let him know your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.